Don Mockholtz, and you are listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 38 for the week of September 23rd, 2020. The related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com, two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, September 23rd, the moon is at first quarter half full in the evening southern sky. On Thursday, September 24th, the moon passes south of the planet Jupiter. Twelve hours later, it passes south of the planet Saturn. I suggest you take this opportunity to observe both Jupiter and Saturn in the daytime, using the moon as a starting point. You will need a telescope and find the moon first. Then, using a planetarium program or a sky app on your smartphone, learn the direction and distance from the moon to Jupiter and Saturn. Use a wide-field eyepiece and focus on the moon, then don't change the focus. Having the telescope focus properly for daytime viewing is very important. So bring the moon into a sharp focus, then offset from the moon to the planets. You will not see the moons of the planets, but Jupiter should show the bands going across the planet. On Saturn, which will be more difficult to see, you will pick up the rings. It is very impressive to see these planets in the daytime, and with the bright moon near these planets and these planets not near the sun and not near opposition, where they are visible only at night, now is the ideal time to see them in the daytime. After passing Jupiter and Saturn on September 24th and 25th, the moon continues on to full phase early next week. Presently, the planet Mars rises about the time the sky darkens in the evening. This week, as it continues to brighten, its brightness will exceed the brightness of the planet Jupiter. The planet Venus in the morning sky is brighter than both. Mars, in an orbit that's not quite circular, will be closest to the Earth on October 6. Opposition, when we are exactly between the Sun and Mars, will be a week after that. Now is a good time to get out and see Mars and crank up the magnification. And through a telescope and binoculars, and with the unaided eye, what color is Mars? We often call it the red planet, but I'm not too sure about that. The sun is now south of the equator and will stay there for the next six months. It crossed the equator headed south on September 22nd. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week, which for our purposes begins Wednesday, September 23rd and runs through Tuesday, September 29th? 
Well, this all depends upon where you live. This week we have only three zones. If you live north of 40 degrees north, the ISS will be in your evening sky sometimes twice per night. Chicago, Russia, get out there and look. If you live from 40 degrees north to 20 degrees south, and that's probably most of us, the ISS will not be in your sky this week. Equator and anyone near it, not this week. South of 20 degrees south, the ISS will be in your morning sky sometimes twice per morning. Australia, AM viewing time. To determine where it will be in your sky, go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location, then click on ISS. In 1985, I wrote a book, A Decade of Comets. It was a study of the 33 comets visually discovered by amateur astronomers from 1975 through 1984. You can have a free copy of the book. It can be downloaded from my website, donmockholtz.com. One section each week. We began with podcast number 35, and there will be at least eight weeks of discussion. For the past two weeks and for this week, we cover the individual comet discoveries. This week's installment can be downloaded from my website. It is Podcast 38, A Decade of Comets, Part 2C. I recommend you download it as each discovery story leads with a lot of facts about both the discovery and the comet. Only some of those facts will be reported in, in the podcast. This week we cover comets number 25 through 33. Of the nine comets we will look at this week, three were discovered from the Southern Hemisphere, and only one of those by William Bradfield. Bradfield of Australia discovered 10 of the 33 comets in this book. We left off with the comet found by Roy Panther on Christmas night, December 25th, 1980. That was the fourth visual comet discovery in 1980. The next year, 1981, no comets were found visually. 1982, had only one visual comet discovery, and that was Comet Austin, 1982G. It was discovered on June 18, 1982, by Rodney Austin of New Zealand from Mount Egmont National Park, 10 miles south of New Plymouth. This was his first named comet discovery, and it came 151 hours and 13 years after he began comet hunting. He began by using 7 by 50 binoculars and by 1971 had accumulated 19 hours. During the next five years, he used a 60 millimeter rifle finder scope, adding another 55 hours. He then built a 6-inch that's 15-centimeter refractor using a Jaggers lens and an eyepiece giving 18 power. 
It was on an out azimuth mount, and it was with this telescope that he discovered this comet. On the morning of the discovery, the sky was clear, but it was windy. After 45 minutes, the sky began to get hazy, and Rodney Austin decided to do one more vertical sweep up from the horizon. Near the top of that final sweep, he discovered the comet. At magnitude 10.4, the comet was 17 degrees high in the sky and 68 degrees from the sun in the morning sky. The comet performed very well, reaching naked eye visibility in August in the northern evening sky. The next comet discovered was found with a spacecraft. This is not new, as the Solwind spacecraft had found some bright comets near the sun, much like the SOHO satellite does today. This was a bit different. The satellite was named IRAS, I-R-A-S. It was an infrared sensing satellite that covers a ring of sky 90 degrees from the sun. In the course of its 10-month lifetime, it surveyed the entire sky in infrared, and it discovered six comets. Now, this was its first comet discovery. It was found on April 25, 1983. The ground crew at first did not recognize it as a comet. Then they did not communicate it to the proper authorities. So on May 3rd, eight days later, Janitsky Araki of Japan found it in the morning sky. Although the comet was so far north, it was up in the sky all night, and he found it while sweeping in the evening prior to midnight. This was Araki's first comet discovery. This find took 132 hours, and he was using a 3-inch or 80-millimeter refractor. A few hours later, George Alcock of England picked it up from indoors. He was using his 11 by 80 binoculars and looking through a closed window. Alcock had discovered four comets previously and several nova. The comet was magnitude 6.4 at discovery and it was brightening and moving rapidly. It was only 20 million miles or 32 million kilometers from Earth at discovery. The comet is named Comet Iris Araki Elcock, 1983-D. The comet could have been found earlier if it had behaved normally. It should have been magnitude 10.8 in late March, near the star Vega. In early April, I swept the area and I did not see it. Possibly the Milky Way background mask it, or perhaps it was not as bright as it was expected to be at that time. It was later learned that pre-discovery photos show it at magnitude 12 as late as April 17th, whereas a normal formula prediction suggests it should have been about magnitude 9. So it appears that it brightened quite a bit shortly before discovery. This comet continued to approach the Earth, getting as close as 2.9 million miles, that's 4.7 million kilometers a week later. It was visible to the unaided eye for several weeks and it appeared large in size due to its closeness to Earth. 
by late May, only a few weeks after discovery, it was in the southern hemisphere at magnitude 10 and dimming rapidly. While everyone was watching this comet, and it was quite a sensation, another comet was discovered. On the morning of May 8, 1983, three Japanese comet hunters found a new comet. All three found it within a total time span of 50 minutes. Suguno, using a 6-inch, 15-centimeter reflector, found it after 450 search hours. It was his first comet discovery. Saiguza was using an 8-inch, 20-centimeter reflector to find this, his second named discovery, after 750 hours of searching. And for Fujikawa, this was his fifth named comet discovery, coming 800 hours after his previous comet discovery, five years earlier in late 1978. He was using his 20 by 120 binoculars. The comet is named Comet Sagona, Saigusa, Fujikawa, 1983E. The comet was low in the morning sky, magnitude 7.0, but only 28 degrees from the sun. A thin crescent moon was 52 degrees to the right and not a factor. Now, like the previous comet, this one also came close to the Earth, this one being 6 million miles or 10 million kilometers in mid-June. However, as it approached the Earth, it became more difficult to see, in part due to the large size of the coma, and in some large telescopes, it seemed to disappear. Our next comet was discovered with the largest telescope used to find any of the 33 comets. It was a 19-inch, 0.52-meter reflector at 65 power at the Vilnius Observatory in Zubekistan. The discoverer was Casimiris Cernus, who had discovered his first comet in July 1980. Since then, he had spent 297 hours searching for comets, most of those hours with his 20 by 110 binoculars, but 31 of those hours with the 19-inch reflector. The comet was named Comet Cernus 1978L. At discovery, the comet was in the morning sky, 73 degrees from the sun and magnitude 10.7. It was in the constellation Aries. The comet reached perihelion, its closest point to the sun, the very next day at a very distant 3.3 astronomical units. It brightened a bit as it neared the Earth a few months later. It probably could not have been found much sooner. I swept over it and did not see it on July 6th, 7th, 14th, and 20th with 29 by 130 binoculars. 1983 was an exciting year with those two comets coming close to the Earth. Now we move to 1984. William Bradfield found the next comet, his 12th, on January 7, 1984. He had searched for 384 hours and three years since his previous find. This comet is also periodic. 
It returns every 152 years. The comet is designated Periodic Comet Bradfield 1984A. At discovery, the comet was in the morning sky, magnitude 10.7, and 46 degrees from the sun in the constellation Norma. Now for this find, Bradfield used a 10-inch, 25-centimeter reflector with a 32-millimeter eyepiece giving him 44 power and a field of view of 1.3 degrees. The telescope mount is triaxial. This is an invention of Bradfield's that it had an alt-azimuth head driven around a polar axis. He once wrote me a letter describing how it works. The purpose of this was to help even out the overlap sections at the left and right of his horizontal sweeps. Our next comet, in the 30th of the 33 in this book, was discovered by Rodney Austin of New Plymouth, New Zealand on July 8, 1984. He was using his 6-inch, 15-centimeter F8 refractor on a redesigned mount in which the eyepiece remains stationary while the telescope moves in altitude. He was sweeping horizontal sweeps, and it had been 43 sweeping hours since he found his previous comet two years before. This comet is named Comet Austin 1984I. How bright was the comet at discovery? Rodney Austin reported 8th magnitude, but reports from other observers the next day seem to indicate 6th magnitude. The formula I'm using in this book for this particular comet would place it at 5.8 magnitude. At discovery, the comet was in the morning sky, 69 degrees from the sun, and this comet was moving very fast, about 6.5 degrees per day. It took teamwork to confirm the comet because it was moving so fast. The comet passed between the Earth and the sun and into the evening sky for a short time, then back into the morning sky. The comet remained brighter than magnitude 7 for two months and became as bright as magnitude 5.0. Could this comet have been found earlier? If it had behaved normally, then five weeks prior to discovery, it would have been magnitude 11.6 and 84 degrees from the sun in the morning southern sky. That would probably be considered discoverable. Two weeks before discovery, as the moon was leaving the morning sky, it should have been about magnitude 8.8 and 5 degrees northwest of a galaxy known as NGC 253. On that morning, I swept that area with my 10-inch, 25-centimeter reflector. I saw the galaxy, but not the comet. Both objects were just a few degrees above the horizon, with the comet slightly higher than the galaxy. Perhaps the comet did brighten shortly before discovery. Kaseo Takamazawa of Japan discovered the next comet on July 30, 1984. It was found in the morning sky, but very far from the sun, 171 degrees. This puts it near opposition, and from most of the world, it was above the horizon for nearly the whole night. Therefore, any astronomer who had clear skies during those moonless nights 
could have picked up this comet. The comet was magnitude 9.4, and it had taken Takamazawa 271 hours to find this, his first named comet discovery. The comet, as it turned out, is a periodic comet returning every 7.3 years. Now, if this comet had behaved normally, it would have been magnitude 11 in mid-March, four and a half months before discovery, and 88 degrees from the sun in the morning sky. Now, from here, it would have brightened to magnitude 9.5 and 113 degrees from the sun two months later, in mid-May. By early June, it would have been magnitude 9.0 and 150 degrees from the sun. My records show that I swept over it nine times, nine times during those four and a half months without discovering it. So what was going on with this comet? Pre-discovery images show that it was photographic magnitude 16, which translates to perhaps visual magnitude 14 in early July. Now that's when our predictions would have placed it at magnitude 9. Two days later, on July 8th, it had brightened to photographic magnitude 13, which would be perhaps 11th magnitude visually. Then an odd thing happened. On July 26.7 universal time, four days before it was discovered by Takamazawa, Seiki photographed it at magnitude 6.5, much brighter than the 9.4 magnitude reported by Takamazawa. So we now know that the comet outburst a few days before discovery, then dimmed over the next four days before Takamazawa picked it up. The comet was expected to return in 1991, but it was not seen. However, it has been observed on other returns in 1998, 2006, and 2013, but each time it remained fainter than magnitude 15. Our next comet was faint when found and did not get much brighter. It was found by Rolf Meyer of Ottawa, Canada, his fourth comet discovery. It came 86 search hours after his previous discovery four years earlier. He was again using the 16-inch, 40-centimeter reflector at Indian Hill Observatory. At Discovery... Comet Meyer 1984O was magnitude 11.7 and 52 degrees from the sun in the evening sky. He found it on September 18, 1984. After discovery, the comet moved closer to the sun and was lost in the sun's glare for a few weeks. This was Rolf Meyer's fourth and final visual comet discovery. His first find was in 1978. All of his discoveries were made in the evening sky from the observatory using the 16-inch reflector. And he found each of them with very few search hours. This is outstanding. Sadly, Rofmeyer passed away in 2016. I had swept the area on September 14th, less than a week before Meyer found it, but I did not find the comet. 
I was using my 10-inch, 25-centimeter reflector. Cernus also swept over it with his 19-inch reflector. Our last and 33rd comet discovery story involves two amateur astronomers living in the United States. David Levy, born in Canada, but residing in Tucson, Arizona, discovered a comet on November 14, 1984. Levy had been searching for 917 hours and 19 years. This was his first named discovery. He would go on to discover nine comets visually, plus working as part of the team with Carolyn and Eugene Shoemaker. He has his name on 13 more found from Mount Palomar. But during this time, over those 19 years, he was out comet hunting for 850 sessions. He has used a variety of instruments, including an 8-inch, 20-centimeter reflector and a 6-inch, 15-centimeter reflector. For this find, he was using a 16-inch, 41-centimeter reflector with a 32-millimeter Erfro eyepiece giving... 64 power and a field of view of 0.75 degrees. The telescope is mounted on an alt azimuth mount and he sweeps in an up and down motion. About a year before, Levy picked up comet Hartley Iris 1983V at magnitude 11 in the evening sky. This comet was discovered by Malcolm Hartley on November 4th. Then the satellite IRIS found it six days later. It was not confirmed until November 23rd, and David Levy found it seven days later. But back to the comet at hand. Nearly a day later, this comet that Levy found was discovered by Michael Rudenko of Amherst, Massachusetts. He was using a 6-inch, 15-centimeter F8 refractor telescope and a 40-millimeter eyepiece giving him 30 power. He was also using a Lumicon deep sky filter to reduce light pollution somewhat. The telescope is on an alt azimuth mounting. This was Redentko's first named comet discovery, and it took him 247 hours to discover it. At discovery, Comet levy Redenko 1984T, was at magnitude 9.4, and 60 degrees from the sun in the evening sky. It continued moving north and brightened by about a magnitude. This concludes the discovery stories of the 33 comets visually discovered from 1975 through 1984. This has taken us three weeks, and you can listen to past ones on podcast 36 and 37. This is podcast 38. Looking ahead to next week, we will examine the time of the discoveries from the number per year, the number for each month, even the days of the week for each discovery. Hint, apparently comet hunters do not work during August. Actually, they do, but they found none of the 33 comets in August. Go figure. As for the comets in our sky this week, 
We have three in the evening sky, but the moon is in the area. If you wish to look at them, you can get podcast 37, maps 1 and 2. They will show the evening sky comets for this week. There's a comet in the morning sky, and you can find that on podcast 38. That's this podcast, map number 2. It is Comet 2020 M3 Atlas, and you can find that on that map number two, and you can still find it in the morning sky before the moon becomes full in another week. We did a little experiment last month with the moon, and let's do it again. The moon will be full on Thursday, October 1st at 2104 Universal Time. Now, technically, that is next week, but I want to tell you about this now. I'll mention it again in next week's podcast, but some of you don't listen to these podcasts until later in the week, which would be after October 1st. So let's set the stage. Full moon is Thursday, October 1st, 2104 Universal Time, but the moon will be several degrees south of the ecliptic. The exact distance depends upon your latitude. What I'm asking you to do is to look carefully at the moon when it is near full on October 1st. Does the moon really look equally, fully illuminated around the edge? The further north you live, the greater the effect. So Santa Claus, this one's for you. I suggested this on Podcast 34 and tried it myself. And I did see some difference with the north side showing some shading and contrast on the craters, while the south limb was very well lit with no contrast and no craters easily visible. Look for the same thing late this week. October 1st would be the ideal time to do it. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don podcast episode number 38 for September 23rd, 2020. I'm Don Mockholtz. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmockholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. God willing and pod willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Dawn. We will discuss what's going on in the sky and look at the very uneven spacing of visual comet discoveries and more fun facts from the book A Decade of Comets. All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.